Hello, welcome to Flat 26 podcast. Em is currently finishing the book <laughs> that we're meant to be talking about. For the about. second time, I've already read it once, <laughs> months ago. <laughs> I haven't actually read it through a second time properly, but my excuses are I moved house yeah, and we had a big also, thing. Also, I spilt water all over <laughs> my book <laughs> and it took weeks for it to dry out properly, so I couldn't actually read it for a while. Okay, so I'm going to start while Emily's finishing the book. Um, We're talking about a book of essays by um, Rebecca Solnit um, called Men Explain Things to Me. Um, It was published in 2014. She is a San Francisco-based author. She's got a few other books. And she also writes for the London Review of Books and the Los Angeles Times. So she is, she's quite a prolific author. Um, are you ready to start? I have one sentence that I want to read. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Can I move your keys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, silently. You're not going to be able to do it silently. Oh, God. Because <laughs> I have keys for here and my new house. I'm like a janitor. <laughs> okay, yeah. I thought we'd start just by talking about our first impressions of it before we even okay. start talking yeah. about what it's yeah. about. Well, maybe I should say it's a it's a book of non-fiction essays, um, mm. and I guess they're mostly about feminism, as yeah. you would guess from the title. Yeah. Um, so yeah, first impressions. I read it all. Maybe this is why I don't remember it, but I read it really quickly on the on a coach journey to London a couple of months ago. So I was sitting next to a random person on the coach and just like. <laughs> freaking out by what I was reading because some of the essays are just really depressing and intense and mm-hmm. you're just like it's like fact upon statistic after statistic after fact about violence and it was kind of hard to read but then I started enjoying it more towards the end when she was talking about like creativity and imagination and her appreciation of um Virginia Woolf that was like a bit more easy to read but I felt I had more meat to it um, yeah so I, yeah I don't know whether it's because we're doing a podcast so when I read it I'm reading it from like a really critical perspective and I'm like constantly looking out for things that I can critique and find wrong about it whereas maybe if I'd have just read it just for no reason I would have just found it on the shelf and read it I would have really enjoyed it do you um, think because men explain things to me the title essay started off being just published online yeah it feels a lot more bloggy do you think if you read it online yeah you would have read it differently I think it's it's like they've tried to make it seem very literary like they've used like a really weird font and I don't know like to make it seem more substantial than it is but reading it I feel like it's better suited to just reading a blog post or something where you get that immediate connection and it really sparks things and you think oh yeah that's really powerful but it is a bit more polemical it's a bit more like there to shock and I don't know how much it it lasts and like I wrote down the dates of all of them because some of them have come quite a long time ago like 2008 and you just feel like things have moved on a bit and it's it doesn't feel as kind of new and fresh as it might have done if we'd have like read that online in 2008 exactly yeah I had a similar response to the first one I think in that and the first couple, actually, I just felt 
there wasn't much meat really to get your teeth into. It was very kind of internet-y mm. in the sense that it was trying to just evoke outrage. And that was yeah. it. Like, it was something you'd kind of share and be like, how bad is this? Or, yeah. you know, how good is this that we're I think I was getting frustrated it. at the same things. There are no answers or mm. no analysis or explanations. It's just like, this is happening. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, from 2008 probably was kind of more important. But I don't know. I just feel like now things have moved on a bit and everyone's very aware of the problems. It's kind of how do we solve them? How do we move forward? Yeah. Um, it's a bit frustrating. I think we can go into this later because that it's probably going to help our discussion about that if we talk about the essays first because it's going to become yeah. clearer what we're referencing. Yeah, probably. Um, so we start with the first one, which is Men Explain Things to Me. It was written in 2008, as we've said. It was published online. I think she says in... There's like a postscript to it, isn't there? And she, yeah. she says that it originated as a joke um, and then someone encouraged her to write it kind of kicks off with this experience her and her friend had going to a party um that was hosted by this really wealthy man Mm. and he started talking to her about her books um and she'd written a book about someone i haven't even heard of my bridge do you know some some history book (laughs) yeah and the rich man was asking her if she'd heard about this new book which was amazing and about my bridge and she kind of being modest, assumed it wasn't her book and maybe there was another book she hadn't heard of. But her friend obviously cottoned on to the fact he was talking about her book. And <laughs> I'll read the bit where she, she says... Um, yeah, so her friend's trying to interrupt him and say, that's her book, that's her book, that's her <laughs> book. But he just continued on his way. She had to say, that's her book, three or four times before he finally took it in. And then, as if in a 19th century novel, he went ashen. <laughs> that I was indeed the author of the very important book it turned out he hadn't read, just read about in the New York Times book review a few months earlier, so confused the neat categories into which his world was sorted that he was stunned speechless for a moment before he began holding forth again. It must be so bizarre to have mm-hmm. like, published a book and it be really acclaimed and yeah. then to have that experience. Mm. So she uses that to illustrate what she means by... Basically... This essay, I think, has been kind of... People have connected this with the um, mansplaining mm-hmm. word, which isn't actually used in this essay, but I think it it may be stemmed from it. Yeah. Um, and she actually says in it that she doesn't like the term mansplaining. Um, but she... Or she says that in the postscript, even, because it wasn't a thing when she wrote it. Um, but she is, like, quite keen to differentiate and... She uses that story to illustrate, I think, the difference between someone just explaining something to you and the explaining which yeah. she is saying is wrong. Yeah, I think that's really important because this is probably just me being me, but, like, I feel embarrassed of the title. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've been reading it at work and I don't really want to leave it on my desk and then people come up to me and go, oh, you're reading a book called Men Explain Things to Me. Like, I just mm. feel like it's very antagonistic and a bit aggressive and I don't know I just I can't I don't really want to like get into a debate with anyone at work about it but antagonistic is exactly the right word because I had quite a weird experience when I was looking for the book in a bookshop and um couldn't find it anywhere and went up to the man at the counter and he was like can I help you I was like yeah I'm looking for a book what's it called and I don't know I felt really uncomfortable saying it to him because he was a man 
Because I felt like he'd be like, oh, and then feel feel awkward. It's really weird because she spends the whole essay basically constantly going, oh, not all men are like this. I know loads of amazing men who get it and they're great. And then constantly like peppering it with those examples. But then the whole general feel of the essay is quite antagonistic. And she'll kind of ruin all of that by making like sort of sarky comments. And you're just like, that contradicts your whole point about how you don't think it's all men. Like, she'll make, like, really rubbish jokes that implicate, like, every man is an idiot. And I just... That's not really me, and... I didn't, I, I didn't like, like that. I didn't like the tone of it. No. I've got an example of one of the sarcastic comments she makes. So she's yeah. talking about, this is in the postscript again, she's talking about the people's reaction um, to the essay. Mm. And she says really sarcastically, some men explained why men explaining things to women wasn't really a gendered phenomenon. And it's just, that's exactly, that sarky kind of tone to me just really doesn't sit well. It makes me feel really uneasy. And mm. I don't know whether... Oh, I don't know. Is it... How do men come back to that? Yeah. How do men enter into this discussion without women jumping down their throat and, and being like... It's almost... It's silencing men. And mm. I get it, because the point is that women are silenced so much. Yeah, but that now it goes back to her not having any answers. Because I feel like for me and you, like we we can't see any answers to this problem without men being involved wholeheartedly in the answer whereas maybe from her generation or her background like it's a very separate thing like even if there are men that understand and they're feminists like ultimately it's about women but personally I feel like just from my life experiences like you can't you can't really change anything unless men are on board as well Mm -hmm. even if we accept her idea that it's all about gender which I don't really and that is related okay. to some of her other essays. So I was gonna, <laughs> I was going to go back to just take a step back actually and talk about rather than her not giving any answers and stuff, her identification of the problem. What do you think about yeah. that? Do you think that it's true that there is this? Do you think this divide is predominantly a gendered divide? Are we just talking about the first essay? Yes, just the first oh, one. Okay. The explain things to me one. Okay, because I have notes about that on the second one. Um, oh God. I just think, I again, I just feel like I'm reading some a blog post or maybe in, like, nowadays, I feel like I'm reading a really long Facebook status. Like, <laughs> you, yeah, you've got, like, your own experiences, but that's not an analysis. So that's just a moan and a legitimate moan and a heartbreaking moan to read, but mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not an argument, it's not an analysis. Um, Can you relate to it on a personal level? I was, was going to ask you that. I was because I was reading it, going, "Oh, that sounds rubbish," but I literally couldn't think of an example that that where that had happened to me. No, and I was like, "Am Same. I?" And I was like, "Am I really lucky? Like the people I hang out with, or like the world I'm in, where I don't have to experience that? Like, is that an ab- abnormal thing where I can't think of an exact example, but I genuinely couldn't think of one? I could not. Okay, so this is this sounds really bad. But so she says the difference between just someone she says she loves people explaining things to yeah, her. Yeah, like learning if, new things. If they're the expert and they're yeah. explaining it, you know, teaching you something, that's yeah. fine. Her kind of where it goes wrong for her is when someone doesn't know more than you, or you actually know more than them about something, but they assume you don't, and they kind of talk down to you in a patronizing way and explain something that they don't actually know as well as you or something. My the only experiences that jump to my mind of that happening 
have come from women. Really? <laughs> I could yeah. not think of any experiences. Yeah. But then I thought, is is that my patriarchal goggles that I'm seeing men automatically as more... Um, I thought that too. I was like, maybe I have experienced it, but I didn't think about it in that way. I, I don't know. I, I genuinely think it's like more of a generation thing because she's a lot older than us. So her experience is... Um, of men are very different like even this example like she's talking to a much older man like basically yeah. this man is like elderly by now mm-hmm. and it's like day to day we don't really interact with men of that age we interact with men who are a lot more similar to our age and I just wonder I'm, I don't think that everything's just getting better because we're getting more enlightened blah 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 it's not that I think everything's just getting better full stop I just think maybe she's just had so many more experiences of that because times have changed so radically just mm-hmm. decade to decade in terms of the workplace and women's role in society that I just maybe me and you are very lucky like we haven't really had to experience that like I've experienced sexism in the workplace like mm-hmm. loads but not 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 this. the explaining things to me. I've experienced it working in bars and restaurants, and it's very different yeah. to this idea of speaking to a man who's considers himself more knowledgeable than you about mm-hmm. subjects. Like I, I can't really think of that. Personally. I also I also wonder whether because she's an academic, I wonder whether this is something that is quite prevalent in spheres like that where you have women and men who are experts in things. Yeah, and. It would occur that dynamic would occur more more there, and she's taking that kind of microcosm and extending it across yeah. the whole of society and thinking, oh, all women will be able to relate as easily. Because with this. she said that thing about how once she published that, then that separate website popped up where it was academic men explained things to me, or it was a Twitter feed or something. Yeah, and I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, there's so much of that to like create this movement of women all over the world experiencing that. Like, there's not going to be the same thing for me, like men explain things to me in a in a local charity or like it's just it just doesn't really fit um the only thing I can think of from my workplace is like it's mainly female but a lot of the very senior positions are male but that's not always the case and I I don't you know day to day I don't feel like I'm experiencing what she's describing no I don't and it's definitely not gendered for me I think I have experienced being patronized before in conversation but like I said I I don't equate that with men or I don't associate that we need to we need to like talk to our friends who are in academia yeah well we should do you have any oh yeah, our friend Steph doing to... a PhD. We'll get her on Steph, the show. Listening. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it was, but it was still. I mean, it's still a brilliant thing to read. I, I think she saves it all, or not saves it all, but what what pushes it above just like a boring thing to read is that she she's like very eloquent and her way with words is brilliant. I, she's I a think very good. Writer. Yeah, reading it, you get very pulled into it and it's really emotive and everything and just reading the statistics like that's for the first essay that's pretty much all I wrote down was like statistics and almost to the point where I like kind of wanted to fact check them and be like is that true just because maybe I'm so naive I just couldn't believe it or I wanted to see whether it because she's talking about America I wanted to see whether it was the same in Britain you're talking about the first essay or the second one no the first one men explain things to me yeah 
I know the second one is the horrible one, but in the first one, she says one of the main causes of death for pregnant women in America is being murdered by. That's in by... the second no, one. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, it's not. Look. I'm going to look at the book, not your notebook. It's not. Oh God. No, I've... it's definitely in the first one. Okay, you look that up while I look at okay. what else I was going to say about this one because I haven't written page numbers. So when we're saying we haven't, our kind of direct experience maybe doesn't support the idea that it's as gendered as she makes out. Um, I think when she was talking about, especially when she was using words like silenced and silencing, I felt really uncomfortable about the fact that she was only talking about it in a gendered way. Yeah. Because for me... That is a very like myopic kind of. What does oh, myopic I'm just mean? like almost short-sighted. Like okay. I'm just looking in front of me. Yeah, it's like if you look from a global perspective, I don't think the problem of silencing is a man to woman one. But yeah, are we are we still just talking about the first essay? You can bring another. Okay, well. no, I'm just. I feel like it relates to the second one because. This is her constant argument, is that we're always talking about all these horrible, horrific things that are happening, and her argument is basically that we never look at it from a gender point of view. We never just go, hang on a sec, all of these horrific crimes, you know, is is always 99% of the time perpetrated by men. Why aren't we talking about gender? Mm -hmm. But I feel like she throws the baby out with the bathwater. Is that the thing? Is that the phrase? I know what you mean. She It's like, yes, gender is a thing, but... She, on the one hand, she'll talk about gender as very fluid, and then in one of the essays she shows how, like, um, like fight for um, marriage equality and same-sex marriage has really undermined gender roles. So she shows that she does think gender is very fluid, mm-hmm. but then she makes all these really, like, like, annoying statements about how, like, men have always been this way, and she'll, like, bring in, like, Greek myths and stuff, almost the point where you feel like she's basically trying to say the essential nature of man is that man is more likely to be violent and then women is women aren't. But it's like, that's not an analysis and that's really not helpful because where does that leave us? But that's, and that kind of frustrated me a lot. That and But that is the frustrating thing, is that she never finishes with a solution and when if she doesn't give a solution, you yeah. end up questioning why she thinks things are a certain way. She doesn't kind of go into why things are like yeah, that. Yeah, like, I I completely believe her that, like, the second essay is called The Longest War, and she basically completely um, frames the idea of violence against women as a war because you, if you look at it as a global phenomenon and a global crisis, then it is essentially, like, on the scale of a war, and she compares the deaths to like 9-11 deaths and deaths from um, contemporary wars and how, you know, women are dying in a massive scale compared to that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's powerful when you look at it from that way rather than like every situation as being individual and an anomaly. But I feel like it. she doesn't... She kind of limits it too much. And one of the things I wrote down that she said, that there must be loads of stuff online about this probably, but she said... Violence doesn't have a race, a class, a religion, or a nationality, but it does have a gender. And mm. I was like, what? Like, she wrote this in 2013. Like, I I get what she means. Like, what she she's basically looking at the way violence is reported and how, for instance, like, um, 
mass shootings and stuff are obviously always by white males, but in the media and stuff, it's always picked up on that they were loners and they were white. Yeah. It never fully addresses the fact that 99% of the time they're men. But I just think to say say something like that is just so short-sighted because... What about colonialism? What about the history of slavery? What about... I've written all this stuff. What about environmental racism? What about um, just systemic violence that is slowly instigated against poor people? Like, how can you say violence is only gendered? What I wrote down was that I think she has a very, very limited conception of violence. I think she's literally thinking about very domesticated or, you know, literally someone punching someone else and she's thinking men do most of the punching but that's not how if you take a much wider idea of what violence yeah. is the way um mark fisher does and i guess realism. like zizek has written a whole book i mean whatever you think about him he's written yeah. a whole book about violence and how yeah. it's not just about person-to-person violence yeah and violence can be a lot more um what's the word insidious yeah where you don't it's happening on a slow scale almost and that's so that documentary on Netflix, The House I Live In, yeah. about the war on drugs, mm. I mean, how can you not say that's about class? And she actually race? talks about prisons at one point, because that documentary is essentially about like mass incarceration and stuff. Mm-hmm. She mentions um, prisons at one point, I didn't write it down, but she basically goes, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, there's maybe loads of people shouldn't, in America shouldn't be in prison, but until we can think what to do with them, they should be there. And it's just like... It just kind of bugs me because there's so much intelligent thought and analysis and really pressing things about racism in America and the private prison system and how just incarcerating black men is just making them money. And I just feel like for her to dismiss it in that way is kind of a bit annoying and, and backwards I guess and and it it bugs me because I it's not that I actually disagree with anything she's saying I just disagree with her conclusions yeah like I totally like the way she describes like the insidious nature of sexism and how women actually it's like a self-policing thing and our expectations of ourselves and all of that stuff I find really powerful and actually resonates with me but it's just then when she makes these like blase statements right at the end of a paragraph, you're just like, oh, come on. That's not, that's not a reason it's um, annoying. for it happening. Just going back to what we were saying about um, violence not being... When I started reading this, I thought I bought the gendered thing a lot more than I did the first essay. So I thought violence, it fits more for me intuitively mm. However, yeah, I hated statements like that about it not being, like, it not having a race or a class. I think it just isn't, it isn't a nuanced argument at all. It's just really, really lacking in nuance. However, to play devil's advocate, I think she would come back to our point and probably say, yeah, but who's instigating the violence? Yeah, she'd look at the statistics and go, well, 99% of violence is male, even if it's against and you, other men. Yeah, you can't, you can't deny that. But then it's like, why? Why is that the case? Mm-hmm. All she says is, we need to talk about masculinity, male roles, patriarchy, in order to understand why these crimes are so common. And that's pretty much all I could find as a reason. So she basically says, yeah, it's all done by men and we need to talk about masculinity. She doesn't really talk about anything else. And I think no. that's because she doesn't have any kind of analysis to base it on and coming from my perspective and analysis of history I would say a lot of it's to do with capitalism and the way that 
The nuclear family instigates very divisive gender roles in terms of who's in control of the money and the food and who is rearing the children and all that stuff. I feel like that poses a much more nuanced argument as to why we have this phenomenon because at, I can't, I can't find it now, but another point, she basically says, like, she basically makes a statement about how for the last hundred years, the last thousand years, the last 50,000 years, we've had this problem, and she makes it out like it's from the cavemen times that mm-hmm. we've had exactly the same problem. Yeah. And that's that's not that's not a proper analysis no. of the situation. Like, yes, there was violence in the Dark Ages, but are you saying that gender roles have been exactly the same since then? Because there have been matriarchal societies. Yes. Yeah. You know, and she doesn't. She doesn't actually try and understand why things are very specific in the way they are now, and why maybe violence and gender roles have changed over time. Um, yeah. Just to take <laughs> a break from kind of like moaning. absolutely. Uh, sorry, Rebecca. <laughs> um, what did we like? Her apart. Um, what I did like about that essay, The Longest War, it wasn't. It wasn't comfortable to read it. Yeah. I do think she has a really, really good point in the sense that the level of violence that's happening against women in society is not viewed the same way other things would be viewed. Oh, yeah. And of, I of a similar scale. I've, like, even the second time I was reading it, I was, like, wincing at just reading mm-hmm. it because if, yeah, in any other situation, this would be, like, a worldwide kind of catastrophe or human rights crisis or something and it's always looked at in like the individual situations yeah yeah um, so she says that um in the u.s there's a reported rate every 6.2 minutes it's estimated that it's actually five times higher than that obviously because maybe only one yeah. in five rapes is reported so someone's getting raped pretty much every minute in the u.s Women worldwide ages 15 through to 44 are more likely to die or be maimed because of male violence than because of cancer, malaria, war and traffic accidents combined. That's staggering. I did did think, though, I was like, what's the difference between war and male violence? (laughs) Well, yeah, especially because rape (laughs) is like a technique of war as well. But they're the same thing, pretty much. Also, I wrote down, um, being beaten by an intimate partner is the number one cause of injury to American women. And spouses are also the leading cause of death for women in the USA. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? So literally, like, the main reason a woman would die in the USA is because they were killed by their spouse. But obviously that can't include, like, elderly women who just die of old age or something. I no, I think it must, it must be of a certain age. Yeah. But I think staggering. That, that it, it's ridiculous when yeah. you realise like the scale of it and the fact that the dots aren't being joined up. It's yeah. kind of like every case is treated as an anomaly, and every man who's in that situation or you know has committed that is treated. I don't know. I wrote something down as I was reading it, which occurred to me is that predators. It, it kind of I started thinking about it when I was reading her bit about victims and how the mm. burden of kind of preventing stuff like rape and murder is yeah. always put on women to be like, don't go out or don't yeah. wear this or, you know, carry a rape alarm and that kind of thing. And I was thinking part of that is this idea that predators are almost alien or inevitable. They're not the men we know in our lives. They're not kind of brothers, fathers, sons. 
they're always this kind of like dark skulking figure on the street, like this mm-hmm. shadowy figure that's always going to be evil. Mm-hmm. And it's like the scale that it's happening in society, that just isn't true. That can't be true. No, no. It's the men that we know. It's the men who are being brought up. And until we actually acknowledge that that is the case, it's not yeah. going to be... Like, everyone we know who is bringing up a son right now, who's, mm-hmm. like, a child, that person could be a rapist. If you yeah. don't... Like, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but if you don't raise them to understand those issues, that's kind of opening them up to the ideas of things that are acceptable in society. Yeah. And, like, she kind of talks about it on a spectrum. Like, you can't you can't divorce, like, rape or even murder from, like, sexual harassment on the street or domestic violence at home like they're part of the same problem they're part of the same spectrum so really like anyone who like gives birth to a son has a responsibility to try and raise them in that way obviously you can't control what your kids do but I do think like it's to that extent that everyone has a responsibility to every man they know every male they know to talk about these things which I guess is why me and you find it hard to relate because we talk about this kind of stuff with our guy friends quite a lot and yeah. or they at least they want to understand or they try and understand and it just it must be really hard to like not be able to do that with people that you you're friends with or that are family members yeah um but yeah i did like it when um she talked about that campus university that there were loads of rapes and they put out all those posters saying to all the female students don't go out after dark and then they put up all these other posters that were advertised at all the men saying don't leave your accommodation after dark (laughs) because like it's like the same logic like if the men are the ones raping then they should just stay inside so they can't rape anyone or it says something like carry a rape whistle if you think think you're gonna rape a woman pass it to her so she can go for help i mean it's all ridiculous but it does show it but then again in that essay she made that welcome to manistan joke oh which made me cringe (laughs) not to pick up on rebecca but that joke was rubbish (laughs) like she made a Pakistan joke called Welcome to Manistan. It's because she talks about Malala, doesn't she? And she says that yeah. she says that what um, the Taliban did to her is just a matter of degree worse yeah. than something else. I can't remember what her other example was, but it was like a Western example of the way yeah. women have been. Um, I think silenced. she thinks it sounds clever though. And part of me just cringes a bit inside. It's like it's not funny, and it's also just. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe I'm just being really, like, overly critical. But. I think for me, it it's just a bit... She's it's just lacking yeah, subtlety. Because she, she says that she doesn't like the phrase mansplaining because it implies it's an inherent thing to men, whereas her thing about men explaining things to me was that it was very specific examples. But then she makes a joke about Manistan and obviously saying that is a very broad assumption about all men and it contradicts her points. Yeah. She's not very consistently careful. No. About stuff like that. No. Um, Should we move on to talking about another one? Maybe let's move towards the end of the collection where we started to like it a bit more because then we can talk about what we preferred. (laughs) Essentially... I want to talk about my favourite essay in the book, which was called Wolf's Darkness. And yeah. It kind of draws on Virginia Woolf a lot. 
The reason why I felt like I liked this one more is because she's not explicitly talking about feminism that much. (laughs) And also, I feel like it was the most philosophical, clever, more meaty essay in the book. You could kind of... It got me thinking it rather felt, than It felt just... like it it was worth being published on paper rather yes. than, like, a Facebook status. It was intellectually stimulating, yeah. not just trying to kind of poke at your emotions and yeah. your outrage. I, it's a hard one to summarise, though. <laughs> yeah, the one that I just skim read. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, okay, so what's it about? It's about imagination. It's about the freedom of not knowing the future, um, it's about, well, she talks about it as darkness, doesn't she? But she uses the quote from the very beginning from one of Virginia Woolf's diary entries, mm-hmm. which is at the start of World War One, where Virginia Woolf, um, I didn't write it down, writes, um, hang on, I can find it. We'll cut this bit out. Because <laughs> I did like this quote a lot. Yeah, she said, the future is dark, which is the best thing the future can be, I think. Virginia Woolf wrote that in her journal in 1915. I love that. It just kind of like stayed with me. And maybe it is because everything nowadays is always about trying to find the answers to things and to completely know everything in non-fiction, even in fiction sometimes. And just to be like, well, we don't know what the future holds and actually that can be a really liberating thing. Yeah. And it actually can help you to feel optimistic about the future. No, well, she says, she relates it to hope. And this is actually, I'd never thought about it in these terms, but I'm so glad that I've now read it in these terms because I can use this argument now against anyone Mm. who's really pessimistic Mm. about you know, whether protest works or whether we could ever change anything. Because she says optimists and pessimists are both falling into that kind of dog, like dogmatic certainty, like they know the future. Because optimists mm. are like, I know it's going to be great. Pessimists are like, I know we're never going to achieve anything. But actually, you know, if we have kind of some intellectual... Um, humility we know that we can't know anything we yeah. don't know the future nothing's for certain therefore you have hope because good things could happen yeah and it's and often it's in the most unexpected ways which you would never be able to predict um and that i find that really powerful as well yeah um i kind of liked what she said when she was saying how the language of assertiveness boldness and boldness is easier and simpler to write than language of nuance and ambiguity, which was kind of like criticising a lot of writers, I guess, who often just feel like it's a lot easier to just write, like, assertively, like, I know this, I know that, and it reminded me of the whole, like, the militant atheist thing, Mm -hmm. and probably because I'm also reading that Science Science Delusion book, which is really interesting as well. Well, she talks about critics, doesn't she? And the role of the critic. And she says where a lot of critics are bad is that they take something, an author or an artist, and they just try and categorise them or they try and have the answer. Whereas Mm. she says a good critic actually opens up something for the reader and, yeah, kind of creates a space to have conversation and to... Mm. interrogate it more rather than just saying this is the way it is this is the interpretation this is the right interpretation she did talk about that a lot in the previous 
um, essay as well, the grandmother spider one, because she gave the example of genealogy and how like traditionally it would always be like the male line and you'd basically ignore all the female lines of the fat of the family tree um and how a lot of the time critics will do that with like literature or arts they'll just be like picasso led to pollock led to this and yeah. it's almost like she basically says how can you say that artists are only influenced by other artists mm-hmm. they're influenced by everyone in their life they're influenced by their hobbies and she just gives that example of this artist who th- basically stopped on the highway and threw a critic out of his car because he was really influenced by like graffiti or something that wasn't like art and this critic couldn't accept it and he was like get out of my car and just like threw him out of his car um and just the idea that you you can be influenced by anything and to then create this like really rigid genealogy is just excluding so many voices and obviously a lot of yeah. the time that's been women as well who mm-hmm. haven't been in the official status of art or like artists and that's the thing women always fall through the cracks that way yeah because they don't and actually that leads quite nicely on to she goes on to talk about liberation and she talks about wolf's um kind of conception or ideas about liberation and what it means and she talks about um that I probably need to find where I've written this down because she writes it a lot better than I'm going to explain. Yeah, that it's not just, we don't just want liberation in the sense of official kind of like or institutional liberation, Mm. but we need a more, um, we need to go beyond the kind of familiar and the known and the categorised to create, I don't know, a more intellectual or imaginative freedom for Mm -hmm. ourselves rather than just I kind of pitched it in my head as kind of economic freedom versus more of a spiritual Mm. or artistic freedom. Um, What do you think about the relationship between those two things? Because they're obviously not mutually exclusive. What, the economic freedom versus... Well, it's weird. that It's interesting that she's talking about Virginia Woolf as well because I haven't read any of her novels. I've only read her Room of One's Own, which is obviously, like, really about economic freedom... Mm -hmm or, like, very practical freedom, but then how that then gives you the space to then pursue more spiritual freedom. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether one comes before the other or whether they're, like, so intertwined you can't separate them. It's hard. Um, I think they probably are intertwined, but I think even... You can separate them to an extent, I think, because even if you had the economic freedom... You know, which arguably, if we're taking it on an, a very personal level, mean mm. you have, if you're looking yeah. at us compared to our male friends or whatever, yeah. we have the same economic yeah. freedom, roughly. Maybe we'll get paid less than them or whatever yeah. um, in the future. And I know there's a propensity for that to happen more to us than them. But if you have that economic freedom, I think there's then still the kind of shackles of gender stereotypes and the fact that we've been brought up maybe expecting less of ourselves or Mm -hmm. not being as confident or maybe not talking about us in general now but um I don't know even if you achieve that economic freedom there's still another way to go but I think that that applies to women and men I think both of us then by gender stereotypes are equally kind of 
stunted in terms yeah, of like our potential. It's, it's like she kind of says it like we're either all free or we're not mm-hmm. because yeah like to the extent like men are completely shackled by like really reductive ideas of masculinity and what it means to be a man yeah and and that to me that's awful and I wouldn't want that for anyone so uh, but then but then coming from at it from like a very materialist like Marxist analysis you can't have the spiritual personal psychological freedom without the economic freedom as well mm-hmm. um Oh, no, I'm not saying you can achieve yeah. one without the other. I'm saying, in a sense, then, the economic one has to come first. Yeah, I, I I, do. And that's probably what I dislike about her whole attitude. It's, it's like, all up here. It's all, like, very... It's just kind of... There's, there's no, like, concrete stuff, mm-hmm. particularly in her analysis. But, I mean, she, she talks about the IMF loads. And, like, that's obviously economics, but... She only talks about it like metaphorically in terms of the IMF being male and the like other like Africa being female and it's like yeah it's a powerful image but is that really analysis I don't know it doesn't really explain anything to me. Um, well, it's but, not talking about systems; it's talking no. about an institution. Yeah, and it's like doesn't say anything about why the IMF exists or what its role is in the world. Yeah, I do think like maybe the the reason why we like this essay about Wolf is that. Um, Maybe just, I don't know, like, I feel like maybe this is what is easier for women to understand rather than our male friends, because no matter how much they care or how much they want to understand, ultimately they can't understand it. And that's kind of what she's saying in the essay is that we have to embrace the darkness of not completely being able to understand but try and empathize and that's where mm-hmm. she brings in Susan Sontag and all her varying opinions about photography and how they've changed over the years and just the difference between like empathy and actual understanding of what it's like to be in that situation whereas with all the other essays I feel like it's just facts and anyone can read that and be shocked but to actually understand all those really subtle ways that our whole upbringing our whole childhood our whole mind is shaped by it Mm -hmm. is a lot harder and we've had those conversations with guys we know and it's it's really hard to help them understand what that's like if they've never experienced it yeah and maybe we like everyone just needs to embrace that rather than think that's a detriment to something to actually just accept that you're not always going to know exactly what it's like to embrace the uncertainty yeah um there's a good quote oh she talks about i can't remember who she said said this i think it's one of her friends or academic colleagues or something talks about the tyranny of the quantifiable um Mm. in that what can be measured almost always takes precedence over what cannot be measured which is yeah it's true and that is a critique of a capitalist society in the sense that you know everything's given a monetary value and that's what we work on we don't you know other things are delegitimized or not talked about or shrugged off like you know things that can't be measured like um artistic freedom or happiness or satisfaction those things that can't be given a monetary value are devalued in our society Mm. like the whole argument about um education and putting a price on education Mm. you know they're trying to put a price on things you can't put a price on yeah oh yeah they'll try though (laughs) yeah yeah they'll always try um right where does that take us how where where does it say on there how long we've talked for we started at eight 
No, we started at like 10 to 8, I think. Oh, okay, so we've got like 10 minutes left maximum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should talk about what we we should conclude and talk about yeah. what we liked and didn't and like. And then we need to do the rating. <laughs> I feel like we've kind of been... <laughs> Sorry, quite, Rebecca! ...quite forthcoming with our opinions I, <laughs> throughout the whole I'm, thing. Okay, yeah. No, yeah. I think... Okay, I think the I think the um, Virginia Woolf essay is really brilliant, and actually, it made me want to read her other books, especially the one about wandering and about walking. It did make me want to read that. She's obviously his, a historian, and also, I kind of had a weird flashback to doing my masters, and I think I might have read an essay she wrote because in the book she talks about how she wrote about the um, the Wild West and like Western expansion in the USA, and I. I actually swear I read an essay by her. I wondered whether you would have read something. Yeah. Because that directly might, relates to... Cause then I, but then I suddenly thought, oh, Solnit. And then I sort of started remembering stuff. But I swear I did that thing where in my head it was like a man who wrote that. Oh, <laughs> and I was, that's ironic. I know, I need to go look it up. Because I actually think she wrote a whole essay about Buffalo Bill, which I wrote oh, about. okay. I'll have to go look it up. She's obviously really intelligent and I would quite like to read some of her stuff that's a little bit more analytical and maybe goes into more depth. Um, yeah, I think that's mainly, in a nutshell, what was lacking was depth. Yeah, yeah. I just found... I found it... A lot of it just quite boring, in a sense. Yeah. I'm kind of... I think we're, like you said earlier, we're just a bit past that now. Yeah. And then I did... I, we haven't really talked about it, but she does, like she keeps kind of bringing up like celebrity scandals and stuff and how they're always reported a lot, but they're reported as like an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Like, oh God, like that never happens normally. And obviously it made me think of all of the recent stuff with the Harvey, how do you say his name? Weinstein. 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 I swear he brought him up on the last podcast. <laughs> but I'm, but I don't that, think that happened at the last podcast. Has it not? But that just made me think like, have have things changed fundamentally since she wrote those essays or have they not? Because I feel like when that whole Harvey scandal was came out, it was almost like not treated as an anomaly because women were like constantly coming out with stories about it and the whole Me Too campaign, it was almost beyond the point of saying this is random, like saying actually this is really prolific and basically every woman has experienced something like this. Yeah. But then I feel like what annoyed me about that is it needs to go one step further with men kind of taking a bit more responsibility and a bit more of a voice about it because it was still all about women telling their experiences. And I think that hashtag Me Too thing actually relates quite closely to what I think she does wrong. And, you know, in the sense that her, when we were saying earlier, the tone is very internet-y and outrage-y and, you know, full of indignation and the kind of thing that just gets you a bit riled up. And that's what that whole Me Too thing, I think, I don't want, I don't really want to get into criticising it because I don't mm. really know enough about it and, and stuff. But it's all very kind of riling up these emotions, but then there's no answers. Mm. And also, I think another criticism of it is that it, it's kind of a closed loop. It's a closed circuit. You're talking yeah. to the same people. And, you know, me and you are sat here reading this book explaining why we need feminism. And, like, we bloody know we need feminism yeah. already. And the thing is, is that people just saying that over and over again in different ways and different statistics, it's not going to make a bit of difference if they're talking to people who already agree with it. It yeah. was kind of like when we went to that feminist event in Norwich about women. What? 
We've had the women in business thing. <laughs> oh, that! I was yeah. gonna say that wasn't a feminist event. <laughs> oh, okay, I don't. It was about I know women what you mean, being though. good in business or something. That was bizarre. We yeah. went for the free booze, <laughs> and it was just a bunch of people who already thought that women should be equal in a room, writing on whiteboards yeah. about why we need to do it. And you know, we said at the time, mm. the people who need to be here are the people who don't think this. Yeah. And how are they going to get convinced? And I think if we don't step out of that circuit or that kind of little closed bubble of us all thinking we need feminism and actually think how are we gonna do something about it you know have like a more in-depth analysis of society and how society needs to change and how we can go about doing that and more in terms of economics and that kind of actually looking at how people who used to think men and women weren't equal and now do like what's changed their mind what Mm -hmm. like material circumstances have changed their mind I, w- I would love to, like, actually just sit in a room with Rebecca Solnit and talk to her about it and debate Same. her about it. But I feel like this book is only going to get read by people who already agree with her. And anyone who doesn't is going to pick up on all the things we've said mm-hmm. about, like, the sarky jokes and stuff and, and actually make the division stronger. Exactly. Like, people who already have a tendency not to agree are going to read the title and probably be yeah. offended by it and be like, oh, typical, you know, whatever. And that's the thing, all her jokes in it, she's making jokes knowing that the person reading it is going to be in agreement with her because those jokes wouldn't work otherwise. I think she's... What frustrated me is, as well, I think the only solution she kind of hints at giving is very in terms of... It's very wishy-washy. It's in terms of, oh, let's just change the mind and if we just change every individual's mind, then it'll be okay. Her only solution is basically like... We, you know, we need to bring up our sons better, which is like... She doesn't even say that. Well, she kind of talks about, like... You're extrapolating. Was I actually? She talks about really vague stuff, yeah, like, we need to look at masculinity and Mm. all this vague stuff, but, but like, yeah, that, that's not really an answer. She doesn't relate it to, yeah, economic circumstances, material circumstances, there's no connection made there, and in the last essay, she says it's called... Pan, something about Pandora's box or I something. I hadn't read that one for a few months. So I, can't I was just reading it while you were finishing. You were yeah. reading, and she says um, it's about the history of women's rights, and she's just saying like where we are now, and it's just a bit of a conclusionary one. She says um, she's basically making the point that you know women's rights can be eroded and stuff, but you can never put the idea back in the box that women are equal you probably could and she's saying she's essentially saying that progress in that sense is inevitable i don't know which i completely disagree with in a few generations it could go basically back to how it was before we could regress completely economic situations could change and we could completely go back yeah you know and atwood to handmaid's tale yeah like exactly that and i just think that's a really naive kind of yeah. way of thinking about it and that completely ties into her like oh let's just keep changing everyone's mind a mind yeah. at a time and once that idea is in their head it's never going away yeah once that idea is in society it's well, there it to stay is. kind of thing yeah it's definitely not and also just another criticism while we're on it no but at one point she like when she, in i think it's in the second essay where she's basically hammering home the point like gender is an issue she says like everyone always tries to give any other reason for this other than gender they always say, oh, when the economic crash happened, there were more murder-suicides, but no-one mentions that it was men doing that. And and then people always try and say it's stuff to do with mental illness, but no-one ever says it's men. And I just think, 
how can it not be all of those things as well? Like, yes, it is actually true that when the economic crash happened and people's situations got way worse, there were a lot more suicides, there were a lot more murder-suicides, probably there was a lot more domestic violence because of so many reasons. Like, that's not undermining the fact that it's still a gendered thing, but it's saying that economics and, like, people's actual material situations has an impact. Yeah. And that kind of annoyed me because she's just dismissing that. Like, it's nothing. And also it's always, like, gender is the the end of the road, whereas that's not true. A lot of the time it's gender because of economics, because patriarchy is an economic system, well, not an economic system, patriarchy is a system which means yeah. men control the economy and it's and very recent in, our, in human history, like, which annoyed me when she went on about 10,000 years ago, like, as if that's exactly the same as 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. No, like, when we had agriculture and capitalism and industrialisation, that completely altered the way that the, the two genders were defined mm-hmm. and, like, altered the power structure and you only have to look at alternative societies and in like indigenous societies to see like that gender isn't that static thing where it's always male violence against Mm -hmm. females and I feel like she gets that but then she just contradicts herself quite a lot yeah there just needed to be more of a recognition that at the end of the day economics is where the inequality lies and we need to be careful not to do that thing by the way which I always criticize the left of doing being in. more critical of being more critical of what like, did we give the last book <laughs> i gave it a, i can't remember what eight, i gave it eight i mean everything we choose we're always going to give over five realistically aren't we um i give it a seven out of ten rape alarms because <laughs> because I'm giving it a seven because it's obviously good and there's a lot of food for thought, but I feel like it's scratching the surface and I feel like maybe she needs to have a few more conversations with people and I'm interested to read maybe something, she's an essay she's written now to see if mm-hmm. she's developed her ideas. Yeah. So I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Okay. I feel like it's gone down while we've been having this conversation, <laughs> to be honest. So it's just kind of cascaded into more, more reasons. I don't like it, but... Uh, yeah, I was originally thinking like a seven. I'd probably give it like a six. Maybe a 6.5. Okay. I like my point five. <laughs> yeah, you do. Cool. Okay. So what you didn't are we give doing? it a 6.5 out of 10 somethings. <laughs> I can't think of any other objects. Or a thing. Um... I'm not thinking of anything. What about 6.5 out of 10 um, stupid, pointless pictures in the book that we didn't talk about at all? (laughs) I like Because we're not art historians, clearly. (laughs) Yeah. I like the pictures. (laughs) Okay, so what are we doing next time? Um, I have picked the book for next time because it's my turn and I have forgotten what it's called, so we'll edit this out. What's it called? I don't know. The next... <laughs> the book we're going <laughs> to... Right, so the book we're going to read for our next episode, episode three of Flat 20 Ticks podcast, is by John Banville, and it's called The Book of Evidence. So we'll see you in about a month. <laughs> see you there. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.